All right. Now, please remain standing for just a moment longer as we read part of the text out of the book of James. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. We'll be reading through 1 verse 20. Chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So then, My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You may be seated. The epistle of James is a letter written by James the brother of Jesus. We are shown in the scriptures that Jesus has brothers. It's it's plainly laid out. The only reason that that's odd to anybody at all is because of the false doctrine about Mary that she was a perpetual virgin. Sometimes the Romanist's position gets absorbed unknowingly into Protestants. And so we can be surprised or shocked sometimes by plain teachings of the Bible. But we need to know that though there was a waiting until the birth of Christ for the consummation of the marriage between Joseph and Mary, that they did consummate the marriage. And they did have other children. And James, the brother of Jesus, is one of them. Now James was not initially one who believed Jesus' claims that he was the Messiah. We know this because of the general opposition that Christ received in his hometown. The fact that the prophet does not receive honor in his hometown was one of the things that he taught. And we also know this because at the end of his life, he did not hand over Mary into the care of James or any other sibling. He handed over Mary to be taken care of by John. And so what you have 
is Jesus acknowledging that his mother and brothers and sisters, his family is first and foremost the church, those who believe. And so him giving over Mary to be cared for by John at his death was an indication of the fact that even then, James was not yet professing to acknowledge Christ as the Messiah. So having James later then be serving as a prophet and giving to us this inspired epistle is a significant event. We also see him playing a significant part in the book of Acts. And so having, having those things occur is a, a, dramatic, a dramatic thing. Think about the repentance that you would go through in that. Raised in the same household with the Messiah. Reject him. Not encourage him. Not support him. Not work by his side. Not be with him during his earthly ministry. But after he is dead and risen, to then repent. The pain that James must have experienced in that repentance would be enormous. When you read the book of James, there are several interesting things that stand out. It seems to be sort of the wisdom book of the New Testament. You find over and over again allusions and references to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. You also find a lot of allusions to the Sermon on the Mount, which is sort of the wisdom teaching of Jesus, where he taught that in his own sermons and would try to take things and and make rhetorical paradoxes and difficulties and, and lay them out. So James uses the same sort of teaching style, which should help you to understand why it is that people have a hard time interpreting the book of James. The wisdom books are difficult. The Beatitudes are difficult. The Sermon on the Mount is difficult. It requires a wrestling with their wisdom literature type of things. And so we have to not only look for what is the text saying and read the context in the book itself, and we have to not only be concerned to make sure that we are being careful to consider the grammar, but we need to make sure that we do not take some text and put it against the rest of Scripture. And so, as we read the book of James, we need to use all of those pieces of the literal, grammatical, contextual, and logical reading of Scripture. We are always looking for the literal meaning that's meant to be communicated. Figures of speech have literal meaning. That literal meaning is not what the words say directly. Right? If you see somebody's tossed around by every wind of doctrine, you don't understand doctrine to have an airspeed. Right? You understand that the point is that the doctrine has a changing and persuasive power on the hearts of those who hear it. And so we, we think about the fact that when somebody presents a doctrine, when somebody presents a position, there's a persuasive or moving power to it. And so we need to think about how do we stand firm against it when it's false. So we look for the meaning of the figures of speech, the literary, the literal meaning, reading according to the type of literature. We're looking to look at the grammar to make sure that we don't misinterpret things. One of the key places where that matters is, for example, in chapter 2, when there's that little verse that says, you see them that you're not justified by faith alone. That word alone, the grammar, this is a really small thing, the word alone in the Greek is not an adjective. It doesn't attach to the word faith. Okay, So you have to look at that, and you look at the grammar, and you realize, oh, it's an adverb, and it's going to connect to, for example, the word justify. Okay, So we're going to... We're going to see how that matters. So the grammar matters. The grammar matters. And when we're looking at that, we also look at the context of where does it fit in the book. And I, I think this book is very clearly a chiastic structure. So we, we look at it. We're going to see that. I have, I have it laid out for you. And thank God for Pastor Phil Kaiser because I looked at a lot of outlines. Almost everybody goes, yeah, this is chiasm. It's pretty clear. There's some things. They, they contrast. They, they, they compare and contrast. and You can see that they happen. I looked at a bunch of them, and it was like, ah, it doesn't feel, it doesn't seem right. Seems to be a problem, breaks down. Looked at his outline last, like an idiot. Looked at his last, and realized that his outline was, was right on. So, this is a little bit different wording, but I think he's, he's got it right. So, I'm thankful for that work, Pastor Kaiser. 
So he has uh, laid that out, so we, we have that here. So we look at the context, we look at the book, we look at the broader context of the Bible as a whole, and we compare scripture with scripture, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things, and we can deal with the difficult passages. If you interpret one part of the Bible to contradict the other parts of the Bible, you've done it wrong. You've done it wrong. The Bible does not contradict. The Bible does not break itself. The Bible does not have things that are unresolvable in it. The truth of God is clear perspicacious, knowable. It is revelation. It is not fog. It is meant for us to know, to have understanding, and by that understanding, to be more godly. And so, we have here the revealed word. So, look at the first page, uh, the outline. So, you see there, I've laid out there the chiastic structure. The center of the book the center of the book, section F, is the famous passage that Rome likes to twist and say, we're going to read the rest of the Bible in light of these verses and say that justification is by faith and works. Now, when you know that you're going to get in a fight, it's a wise thing to prepare. And if you know what the first move is of your opponent, Every time, if you're prepared, if you've trained, you should be able to get a really good sucker punch in. Rome always, always, always uses James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 to destroy the gospel and tear the scriptures to shreds. Their doctrine of authority is most persuasively put forward based upon this passage. They will say, you know, this is really hard and you're not going to be able to get it and to be able to understand how to make this work with Paul in Galatians or Romans unless you have an authoritative interpreter that can help you to get it. So this right here, this is always going to come up. So you need to know that really well. So when we get there, we're going to make sure we've got that laid out clearly, plainly, and you need to be ready to deal with it. So how do we interpret that? And here's, here's, a, little, here's a little bit of a, of a foreshadowing for you. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 is not teaching the doctrine of justification before God by faith and works. It's not at tension with Paul. It's not a difficulty. It's not a contradiction. What he's teaching us, what he's teaching us, is how we are justified in the sight of men. He is teaching us how we can have our profession of faith accepted as credible. James chapter 2 is teaching us about that idea of a credible profession. And it's surrounded by teaching about how we teach other people, and how we speak. So we're going to examine that when we get there. But I want you to know, that's where we're going, and that's the center of the book. Alright, so let's start uh, looking, let's look at A, we're going to look at A, B, and C today. Okay, so A, verses 1 to 8. Uh, verses 1 to 8 is the thesis of the book. Verses 1 to 8 is the thesis of the book. It lays out for us in summary form the things that are going to be laid out and broken down in more detail. So you remember how valuable, how clear it was that Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 were the thesis there, and the rest of the book was breaking down and explaining the righteousness of God in the different senses throughout that book. Well, here we're going to see that the stuff that's laid out in verses 1 through 8 is going to be broken down and explained throughout the rest of the book. B is going to give to us a consideration of being in a low state versus a high state and how God uses those. So, if you feel low, this is something to say to you. If you feel high, this is something to say to you. If you feel just right, I'll do my best to make that broken. So, we'll keep going through the text. And then we look at C, verses 12 to 20. There's a discussion of lust and anger and how those differ from the gifts that God gives. 
And so you can see that those same subject matter, if you look down at A prime, B prime, C prime, you can see how those are sort of dealt with as well uh, in those sections. So you can start to see the mirroring. So we'll, we'll, get, we'll contrast and compare those more when we get there. So when we get to the second half of the chiasm, we'll start to compare the sides of the sandwich and we'll be able to see how those texts work. So we'll, we'll do that later. So I'm not going to, on the first, on the way into F, on the way into the center, I'm not going to show so much how it fits with the, the second half of the book. But when we're going to the second half of the book, I'll then show how those things relate to each other. All right. So A, verses 1 through 8. So this is how to handle trials. It gives some examples of trials. And then it talks about patience and the prayer of faith and the evidence of a, general, of a genuine profession. So verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know a bondservant is a slave. So he's saying, I'm a slave of God. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That and is not meant to differentiate. That and is an explanatory chi. It's, a, it's an explanatory conjunction. It's a, an explanatory and. It's saying, I'm a slave of God, and I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is saying, I'm a slave of God, and that God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's he writing to? To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. And then he says, greetings. It's like a business memo. Real short. Just starts in. Now, the twelve tribes being scattered, here's one place where I'm going to break the rule I just laid out for you that I'm generally not going to jump forward to, to compare. I want to show you how the beginning and the end tie together in terms of the the last couple of verses and the first couple of verses. This greeting to the scattered 12 tribes is a call uh, that gets repeated at the end of the book to return those who wander off. Okay, so think about this. The, the people who are the scattered Jews, these are, these are Jewish believers, and they have lost their home because of persecution. Uh, Phil Kaiser says that this book was written in 45 A.D., um, I'm convinced for a number of reasons that it's certainly written after 40 A.D., but uh, don't know as precisely, have not been able to go into it as precisely. And so there would already be some significant, some significant persecution that's occurred and some chasing out of Christians out of Jerusalem and to some extent out of the broader area of Judea. So what we have here is a situation in which these people have been scattered, and that's a reminder for them of what happened in the time of exile, Babylon. Taking of the, of the territory, the enslaving of the people, the sending out of them, the loss of their positions, the loss of their independence. And so these people, these Jewish believers who have been pushed out of Jerusalem would very much understand the exilic period in the sense of feeling like they have lost their people, lost their home, lost their station. And so they are tried and tempted wanderers. They're sojourners and pilgrims on the earth. And they've left the typological holy city because of trials. And Jerusalem is the, the type, the shadow of the heavenly Jerusalem, of the church. And so this sense of having lost the type would be something that would be very painful. So he's greeting the 12 tribes and, rem and reminding them of the fact that they're scattered. So let's look at the last two verses. The last two verses of the book, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, say, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. The value here, when we see each other wandering in the midst of temptation, of turning each other back to the heavenly Jerusalem, to our covenanted bonds, to our relationships and duties, you save that person from death and you cover a multitude of sins. Now, to further emphasize that, Look at Luke 15. Luke chapter 15 here, I've got it quoted. 
Luke 15 has those three parables about lostness. There's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, right? You've got the prodigal son, as it's often referred to. But the, the idea of the, those three lost things. And the, the one that starts out the chapter, the parable that Jesus starts out the chapter with, says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. So, God's displaying of His mercy in causing repentance and in saving the lost is something that is a higher order of magnitude. It's more than 99. So it's got more than two zeros added on. Okay, It's two, more than two orders of magnitude. Higher than the pure display of justice. God cares so much about the display of His mercy that it's at least a hundred times more valuable to Him than the display of His justice. That's why the angels were insufficient to display His glory. Righteous angels rewarded for good. Wicked angels punished for wickedness. There is no Savior for the fallen angels. God made man the body and spirit so that a mediator could die in the body without dying in the soul. He does not have unbelief. He does not abandon spiritual life to save us. He believes and he dies. It is not possible in the form created for angels to have any death other than a spiritual death. So that's the created order. That's why God has made this. That's why he has made us not just with floating minds, but he has created us with bodies. The material reality matters to God and it's used for the purpose of Christ being able to show the mercy of God. He died for us. Now, this call for those who are scattered, they are now being called upon in the midst of their scattered state, in the midst of their suffering, to count it all joy. Go to verse 2. By the way, sorry, one last plug before we move off the last one. The Matthew 18 process is so important because, because of how valuable it is to see repentant sinners restored. And so it is very important that we all take seriously that idea of resolving conflict with the Matthew 18 process. Chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience... But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This right here, this is the unpacked part. This is the part that's going to be unpacked. So, let's look at verse 2. We're told, on page 3, I've got the explanation of these verses starting to be unpacked. Verse 2, trials are the testing of faith. If you're wise, then you'll see trials as a thing to rejoice over, since the trials will be used to increase our possession of what is good, wisdom. So think about this. We don't count it all joy when we fall into various trials. Why? There are things we like that we are losing. There are things we don't like that we are gaining. Who likes that? Nobody likes that. I don't like that. You don't like that. So those are trials. Those are tests. They are temptations. 
to love something else more than God and to lose our equilibrium. Trials are the testing of the faith by taking things that we value away from us and giving us things that we wish we didn't have. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The only way you could possibly think it is good when you lose stuff you want and you don't get things that you want and you get things you wish you didn't have is to think that it's for something better. We happily give away things that we like in exchange for something better. So what is that thing that we're getting that's better? The highest thing. Wisdom. The knowledge of God. We get to possess more of God. God uses trials, suffering, pain, difficulty. He uses that. It is His manufacturing process to put more wisdom in the storehouses of our hearts. Verse 3, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Okay, so trials and testing, same thing. These trials, what's a trial? Trials when you put somebody up to test them to see if they are innocent or guilty. The testing is to see what's there. Does God need to learn what's there? No, God knows what's there. What God wants to do is to show you and to show other people what is there. He shows himself and causes you to know him more. One of the ways it does that is by humbling us because we fail a lot of tests. And that humbling process causes us to go through the pain of repentance and to receive discipline sometimes. Which is another kind of suffering. And then you have another test. Right? When you get discipline, are you going to scream and say, no, 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 don't do that. Right? Or are you going to say, okay, I understand. Hand against the walls. Stripe the back. Lord, help me to not do it again. Which is it? Now that discipline, that chastisement, is not something where we pay for our sins. It's not something where we gain forgiveness by it. We don't earn favor from God by receiving discipline. We have the favor of God in Christ. He earned our forgiveness. He earned our standing. What He's doing, what God is doing with that chastisement is he's teaching, instructing, edifying, breaking down, tearing down, taking out, removing, putting stuff into the space that was cleared. It's obsolete inventory. He's got to put something in there that's worth something. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That word patience, hypomone. Hypo's under. And that mone, not money, we're talking about here is a strength or a stability. And so, we could talk about this as fortitude. We could talk about it as endurance, perseverance, stability of the soul, strength of the soul. I think the emphasis that James has because of the context is stability of soul. Because he's going to talk about getting rocked by winds. Okay, now why is something stable? Because it's strong. It's well built. It's built to endure. Built to last. The only thing that gives you stability is the integrity and the knowledge of God. The more integrity you have in the knowledge of God, the more consistently you believe, the more consistently you apply, the more stable you will be in the inward man, and the more stable you will be in the outward man. You will be able to be calm on the field of battle. You will be able to be calm on trial. You will be able to be calm in the midst of all stresses. The knowledge of God gives us strength to be stable. The testing of faith produces endurance or fortitude. It produces that stability and strength of soul. That's the output. That's the manufacturing output of the process. So the forge of trial makes the metal of endurance. 
verse 4. But let patience, the same word, have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Hopefully that text kind of reminds you of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, about the Word of God and how is the sufficiency, sufficiency, sufficiency. Right Here we're talking about God bringing trials and how patience is what's produced. And that patience or that stability of soul has a outworking itself. And that outworking itself in the mature form makes it so that you are mature and complete. And that means you are lacking nothing. So the knowledge of God given to us in His Word, the process of suffering, and the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify. These are the ordinary way things happen. God can sanctify by His Holy Spirit without suffering and without His Word. He can do that. He can he could zap knowledge right into your mind. He could make that matrix moment happen. Now I know Kung Fu. But that's not the way He normally does it. The way He normally does it is through suffering and teaching, which can often be the same. And He causes the work of the Holy Spirit to use those. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing if any of you lacks wisdom which is the thing that we're trying to get to make it so you can have patience by the way you have patience you have that strength of soul by having the wisdom planted in you if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask of god who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Here's what James just said. If you're not wise, you should ask for wisdom. But don't ask for wisdom without wisdom. Because if you don't have wisdom when you're asking, he's not going to answer. The prayer of faith. If you have faith, your prayer will be accepted in Christ. If you do not have faith, it will not. What, what is that? What's the prayer of faith? Does that mean you have to have like enough fervor, enough of the right feeling? Now with feeling, everybody, right? Is that, do you have to have sufficient fervor for the, that prayer to be accepted? No. Fervor is not faith. Fervor is not faith. What is faith? Faith is understanding and believing what God has revealed. Is the, the point here that you have to have perfect faith in order for any of your prayers to be accepted? No, if that were the case, the only prayers to ever be accepted would be the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of yours, none of mine. Our prayers are counted as the prayers of the righteous because of the mediation of Christ. The question is, is there any faith there at all? How do you have faith for a particular petition? Can you show from the Word of God that the thing you're asking for is lawful to ask for? Can you show that the thing you want, the thing you're asking for, is something you're commanded to pray for? If you can show that you're commanded to pray for it, then you know that prayer given in faith, the mediation of Christ, will be answered. Now, this language seems to be suggesting that you have to have you have to have your faith without any doubting mixed in. Right? Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. He's not talking about mixing. The point here is not there's there's no mixture inside of you. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Is that you know, is that prayer, that request, that supplication? Is that going to be something that can be heard? He's talking to Jesus in the flesh right there. And he asks him for something. 
Okay? Does that get dealt with? Now, the requirement of faith, there's you having faith, you personally believing, and there's what you're believing. Are you believing the Word of God? If it's not a belief in the Word of God, what is it? Superstition. If you're just believing something else, it's the invention of man's heart, it's demonic doctrine, something you picked up from the culture, traditions. If it's from the scriptures, it's not superstition, it's faith. It's biblical faith. So what you're asking for, can you demonstrate that it is good and lawful from the scriptures? When you feel yourself doubting, right? when you recognize, I'm not sure if it's going to be answered, argue with yourself. I know that this is legitimate to pray for. From this text, have a particular text. Argue with yourself. Preach to yourself. That's how you don't waver yourself. Now, let's talk about the, the wavering element. If you lack wisdom... If you don't have strong enough faith, you should ask God for more wisdom. And He's a God who gives liberally. He gives generously. He gives graciously. He gives freely. And He gives without reproach. He doesn't say, you don't have that? Why are you asking me for it? You should just have more of it. Get more yourself. He says, okay, here you go. go, I'm not sure if I can eat that big of a help." He gives liberally. So then, this asking with faith. We're told to ask without doubting. Every time you doubt, it's sin. If you're doubting the Word of God, it's sin. There's basically one thing our mind is made to do. Our mind was made to believe what God says. And to then work out the implications because the implications are part of what he said and to apply them. We believe what he said, we find the meaning we didn't get and then we apply it. That's what we're made for. Doubt is sin. And the way you overcome that internal doubt is by discovering it and arguing against it so that you Eliminate it. You tear it down. Now, if you leave it, that's a point of instability in your mind. And the danger is, at one moment, you'll believe the part of the Word of God that you've got, and another moment, you'll switch to believing this other thing, this falsehood, this lie. There are things you used to doubt that you don't anymore. There are things that used to be difficult for you, you didn't have answers for them, and they created instability in your own testimony and in your life, and they were weak points of sin. And those have been overcome. They were overcome because the Lord made more clear to you and tore down that idol in your mind and took away that dark place and filled it with light. And we're told the places that we identify as dark spots... We are to fill those with light. And we do that using the Word, praying for wisdom, relying upon the Holy Spirit to fill that place with light. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith. Sin to ask with doubt there. And here's the other thing. If you, don't, if you can't demonstrate something from the Word of God, you should not be asking for it. If you ask with doubting because it's not in the Word of God, then God's not going to answer the prayer. If you ask with doubting because it is in the Word of God, but you don't know it's there, then that prayer is an unlawful prayer. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. There's also going to be hypocrisy in you. You're going to pray for one thing and act contrary to it. You're going to say one thing one day and say something else another day. You're going to pray for one thing from God and then the other day pray to not get that thing. Pray for something contrary. That instability. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We need to get rid of double-mindedness. We need to have integrity. We need to get rid of the mask of hypocrisy. We need to get rid of ignorance. What we need is wisdom. And the way we get wisdom is by asking for it from God. And the way we know what to ask for is by His Word. And so when you have wisdom, you then seek more wisdom. When you don't have wisdom, you don't care about wisdom. When you've been saved, it's because God planted wisdom in your soul by His sovereign Holy Spirit. And then, He makes you desire more of what He has already given to you. So James is talking to the brethren. And what he's saying is, get more wisdom. Be more stable. And he's going to explain in the rest of the book the dangers of hypocrisy and instability and how it makes you so much less useful. Because why would anybody believe your profession of faith if what you do is contrary to what you say? Why would believers believe you? And why would the world believe you? They don't believe that book. If they did, they'd talk about it more. They don't believe that book. If they did, they'd apply it more. Our testimony is undermined because we try to do with one witness, the mouth, what God said to do with two witnesses, the mouth and our works. Our works and our mouth are the two witnesses that make our profession of faith credible. Doing good works but not saying anything about Jesus, not a credible profession. Talking about Jesus, doing no good works, not a credible profession. Proclaiming the name of Christ and doing good works to back it up, credible profession. That is what the book of James is focused on. And if you want wisdom, act in a way that's consistent. Pursue wisdom with increasing consistency. The law of God teaches you the way of life that helps you to grow in the knowledge of God. And so prayer and the law and the profession and being around others who are consistent, they become testifiers to your soul. And so you grow in the knowledge of God. Now, faithlessness, doubt, foolishness, they all bring instability. And when you pray and you don't believe what you're saying, you know what commandment that breaks? Uh, it kind of breaks all of them. You can always do that. right? You can always say all of them. It breaks all of them. Okay, thanks. But, it's taking the Lord's name in vain. Third commandment. You're praying and you don't mean it. Right? It's taking the Lord's name in vain. Chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation... So now we move on and we're talking about a type of thing that you have to deal with. One of those tests. What's the test? The test here, the first one is poverty and the second one is riches. They're both tests. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Alright, so look at this. Verse 9 has a very short reference to the lowly and their exaltation. This implicitly builds off of verses 1-8. through eight. If you're lowly, then you're in the midst of a trial of poverty. Exult in the manufacturing process of the better forming of your soul and pray for God to give you more wisdom. Exult in the fact that you possess the everlasting riches of wisdom, that you are an adopted son, that you have access to the throne, that you can go before the Father as in the righteousness of Christ. Exult in that. That's what you're to exult in. Everything else is lost, but I have that and no one can take it. Exult in that. Verse 10. But the rich, what are they supposed to exult in? In their humiliation. If you have lots and lots of resources, the danger is that you start to think, you know, my money, my power, the pleasure sources that I have, 
these things are sufficient for me to be happy. I can have worldly pleasures, that's enough. The power I've got, I can make stuff happen pretty well. Frustration level is tolerable, I suppose. And the money I have, I'm secure. And that's the danger when you have resources. You forget God. You forget God. The rich, in order to not forget God, need to exult in their humiliation. If you are poor, if you are in difficult times, if you feel lowly, you need to exult in all of the riches that God has given to you. It will give you boldness and power. You can walk around in things off the discount rack and you can feel like a prince. If you are rich, the danger is that you feel like the wrong kind of prince. And so what you need to do is to exult in your humiliation. I am no greater than they. I am a recipient of grace. I do not have the power in myself to make money. I do not have station and honor because of something in me. I do not enjoy pleasures because of the fact that I have the power to get them. It is possible to have pleasures and to find them as ash in your mouth. Power, money, and pleasures are not good gods. When you worship them, they will disappoint and you will become like them. You will be flighty and unreliable and weak and mercenary. The rich need to exult in their humiliation. And they need to remember the transitory nature of those things. This sounds contrary. This sounds stoic. What are the Stoics? The Stoics believe that the way you could have the good life is by essentially not caring about anything. Christianity is not not caring about anything. right? You don't become a better Christian by caring less. You need to care more about the right things. A Stoic goes... If everything awful happens to everything I care about, that's fine. And the Stoic says, if everything good happens to me, it's not really good, it doesn't matter. And you try to help yourself to to not care, to not care, to not care, to see the vanity of things. It seems kind of wise. It seems kind of wise. A lot of Christian men read Stoic things, read things by Marcus Aurelius, read things by other Stoics, and you go, oh, there's a lot of wisdom there. It's wisdom of the flesh. Wisdom of the flesh. It will tell you to deaden one thing, but it doesn't tell you what to enliven. What you have to enliven is the valuing of God and his glory, the knowledge of him. You have to see more and more the beauty of his holiness. And in seeing the beauty of his holiness, you have an increased value and you care about the truth. Now, apart of what the rich man needs to do is to realize that the money he has, the splendor he has, the honor he has, it's like a flower in a grass field. It's not going to be there next season. They don't live through the winter. And if there's a dry season, they dry up faster than the rest of the grass. No sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat and it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. And you're so much better than everybody else in your high station with your money and, and with the honor and with all those things, with the pleasures you get to enjoy. That can disappear quickly. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. We recognize our mortality and the instability of those things, and use them for the glory of God. Hoarding is an activity that's contrary to this. Hoarding is an activity that's contrary to this. We are called to deploy, to sell grain, to put it out, to invest, to do things to bless other people. Hoarding, putting it in barns, is a false security. You can die, it can be stolen, it can rot, Moth can eat. Rust can get in. You deploy. You can't avoid risk. You can't avoid risk, so take risk. Do it boldly. Take risks 
Like when you take a risk, you're trusting God to make you win. Take risks like you're sure that the most important things won't be lost. The ability to be dominion men, to take risks, to put things out there, to take the resources and to be able to put them all on one throw. That ability, when it's the time, when it's the moment to be decisive, that is a way of showing that you are not in love with your riches. Now is a time where people with resources who are Christians need to be called to take lots of risks because we are losing our liberty and our ability to be able to resist. We do not have a really long time to wait. We will either win or we will retreat and win later. I'd prefer to skip the middle step. And so, what we're called to do with our resources is to risk them so that we can win. The Lord will give us victory. The question is, how soon? And how great as an intermediary step? And So we have to take risks with the wealth that the Lord gives us and seek to make it so that we can put the law word of God on things that were not previously taken or things that were taken and then were lost. So we are called to put our resources at risk. Any attempt to hide from risk is false. You guys know what happened to the big banks that collapsed recently? They were trying to put money into the most secure, least risky assets. Government bonds. And what happened is, the Federal Reserve increased the interest rate, which reduced the value, the face value of those notes, and then the regulations from the very government that these people were trying to find security in made it so they had to take those losses immediately, even though they didn't need to sell them. And therefore, they become banks that need to be liquidated according to the regulations. The very prince they put their trust in then stomped on them. Now then, they come in and save, right? You go, look, the government can save. The government will save the banks from the problem the government made. You need the government. The banks that didn't put all their money in treasuries are doing just fine. Doing just fine. Putting your money into the place that has the lowest risk and the lowest returns in order to run away from risk is not an effective way to build wealth, extend the kingdom, or increase your dominion. You have to take risks. That's a part of how you, when you have resources, show that you trust God rather than your money. You're willing to put it at risk. All right. We're going to have to pick up next time um, from here. What I want to do right now is pause, allow for opportunity for objection, questions, comments from the voting members and those with speaking rights.